now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of the Forensic Advancement season, Just Science interviews Dr. David Christensen, a licensed psychologist in the state of Colorado, about psychological survival in a violent career. Dr. Christensen discusses what trauma is and how to be aware of those around you that have been affected by it. Listen along as Just Science learns what can aid in psychological wellness and how self-awareness is a major step in developing resiliency in the profession. Dr. Christensen will also be presenting a live virtual webinar later this year. Check out ForensicCOE.org for more details. Follow the FTCOE on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for the newsletter to receive the latest updates. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, Dr. John Morgan, the director of NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Our guest is Dr. David Christensen, who has a PhD from the University of Northern Colorado and has been in private practice in Colorado for more than 29 years and for most of that time engaged in the practice of helping first responders following traumatic incidents, conducting many crisis intervention stress debriefings, and following tragic accidents and life-altering situations. A licensed psychologist in Colorado, a member of the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and the International Association of Trauma Professionals. He's been an adjunct faculty member at the University of Northern Colorado for 20 years and maintains an active practice consulting with many agencies across central and northern Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christensen. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Well, we're really kind of getting into the issue of stress and resiliency in the forensic science community, and it's a very important issue because it's an issue that's become more in the news because of the uh, major incidents that not only crime scene professionals, but also the medical legal death investigation professionals and others have to deal with, but also just the stress of being involved in forensic science at a time when demands are increasing and the stress can be just increased as well. Let's start, Dr. Christensen, just kind of laying down some groundwork with respect to trauma itself. Can you help me by first saying, how do you view trauma as a phenomenon? And how do you define even this person has been exposed to trauma? Well, that's a very good question. And I break it down into a couple of different categories, one of them being a physiological response when the event happens, a Bursts of adrenaline, for example, where the person intensifies their physiology, they have a release of adrenaline or cortisone, and they uh, they begin to experience the scene in a very visceral way. And so they take in the data visually or auditorily or tactically, and they uh, it's an intense feeling that goes with that. A second way that it happens is through uh, cognition, that repeated exposure to trauma can change a person's perspective on on life by making it more negative or more difficult, they begin to see life through a different lens by repeated exposure to trauma. And so it becomes a cognitive change. They don't experience joy. They lose touch with the simple emotions of people around them because they have been exposed to something so dark and traumatic. 
and obviously we all will react differently to different kinds of trauma, both you know, from one individual to the next and one from one incident to the next. At what point does it become an issue where we should be seeking out additional counseling? Or tell me a little bit about how each of us varies with respect to how we experience and respond to trauma. First of all, culturally, we have to be aware that a person who asks for help is not seen as weak. And trauma is experienced phenomenologically and on an individual basis. So just because a person has a traumatic reaction to a scene doesn't mean that they're incapable of handling other scenes. It just means that that one in particular reached their core, reached who they are as a person in a unique way, perhaps because they have a child of the same age as the deceased, perhaps of issues at home, perhaps of fatigue, but there's many factors that go into how we respond to trauma and why a particular trauma seems to hit home for us. So many things go into that, and one of the dangers that we have culturally uh, within the field is that people who respond with fragility oftentimes feel as though uh, they get defined as being weak or incapable. Yeah, we want folks to be able to seek out assistance when they need it, or even to seek out assistance when they've had an exposure to trauma so that they're able to cope with it over the, the long term. I was just mentioning we uh, for folks on the podcast, please also refer to some of the other podcasts we've done on this topic. We'll link to those off of the page. For example, Prudenberg from uh, the Las Vegas coroner's office talking about the stress and trauma associated with their response to the mass shooting in Las Vegas in 2017. And really, to some extent, Every first responder experiences trauma when you're responding to an incident like that, and everyone needs to be aware that it could end up being truly an existential crisis for them with respect to their lives or their profession. Yes, I think there's a couple of signals that we can look for. One is that if it becomes a private issue, if we're embarrassed about how we have reacted, if we feel a certain amount of anger towards a suspect or towards a situation, if we feel a certain amount of guilt or a certain amount of repulsion, about a situation, oftentimes those are what makes the recurrence or the memory of that event become private. We're too embarrassed to share with somebody how we felt. And I've dealt with some cases where the persons who responded to the scene were so repulsed by what they saw that there was no way that they could put that into easy language for a layperson, a spouse, for example. And so it becomes a private trauma for them because they feel like they've been given something that can't be shared in a common way that we might tell a friend about a disappointment or a medical concern. These people have something that feels so powerful and embarrassing to them that they're unable to experience it or express it to people. So that's when a therapist becomes helpful because of the confidentiality, because of the professional response that we try to help people put into words what they've experienced. Yeah, and taking a step back, how do you determine the variation among some folks? For example, you know, I might have a real problem if I see my own child, obviously, or even if they have a small problem where they skin their knee or something like that. But I also might have, like you said, I might associate a another individual and think back to myself or a loved one in that regard. Why do we associate in that way? Is that It's obviously not a problem, but the human mind actually works to make those associations all the time, whether it's experiencing trauma or not. Is that something that, that we need to understand in order to be able to kind of deal with our feelings about the trauma? Absolutely. Most persons listening to this would be familiar with Pavlov and the famous experiment from 1904 uh, in which the dogs were trying to salivate to a bell. 
And the importance of that is simply that physiological responses in the human body, in humans, for example, it might be a heart rate or a respiratory rate or eye blinks or sweating or physical gestures, that those things can be trained. Whereas before that, we mostly believe that only external body movements, for example, catching a ball or playing an instrument, that those could be trained, but the internal workings of heart rate, respirations, internal muscle movements, those kinds of things could not be trained. So Pavlov's experiment became very famous in part because it showed us that things that we are unconscious of, involuntary movements, for example, can be trained. And once trained, they can last for a lifetime. So a person who flinches at a certain event or has a stomach ache or has a headache or has muscle tension just from that one event, they could experience a recurrence of that symptom sometimes for years to come. Secondly, related to people that might be listening to this podcast would be people who stay with psychology and understand it, understand that also in addition to the bell, the dog could be taught to salivate to a buzzer prior to the bell or to a light prior to the bell, which we'd call secondary traumatization or tertiary traumatization as well, is that it doesn't have to be the exact symptom that triggers the response. It can be something related to that. And that's where it gets pretty complicated because the person himself or herself may not recognize the secondary tertiary traumatization that has occurred. And so they're reacting to things in their environment that recreate the trauma for them that other people would not notice at all. And this is where it can actually manifest as just anxiety. You're, you're under a constant stress or you feel anxiety that can be very debilitating. It could be related to the trauma, but you don't really know consciously what the origin of that anxiety is. That's correct. Most commonly what will happen is a person will take a deep breath upon the site of a trauma. They'll, they'll take that uh, inhale. And then later on, their breathing patterns will change, again, primarily at bedtime, but their breathing patterns will change reflecting the trauma, even though it could have been days or weeks or sometimes years after the actual trauma occurred. That physiological response can still bring back the trauma in a physiological sense. They may not have the image in their mind, but their body remembers. They have muscle tension. They can't sleep. They activate adrenaline in situations that those things are not required. Now, me, I have a tendency. I won't call it a strength, but it's an asset in something like this in the sense that I have an ability to intellectualize things, which is why I do well a podcast, right? I know how to intellectualize trauma, including in my personal life sometimes. And that can be a weakness because maybe I'm not experiencing life as well as I should because I'm intellectualizing it too much. How do we, in terms of the kind of brain function, break down this kind of balance between, you know, kind of I can step back from the trauma versus you know, the need to actually experience it and feel it. You don't want people who are just automatons out there in law enforcement operations either. Is the brain designed to be able to balance that? Well, you bring up a very good point. The brain has two hemispheres to it, and this is an oversimplification, but the left brain typically deals with hard data, factual data, and linear data, and the right brain deals with emotional data or artistic data or aesthetic data. And so it's actually a good trait for first responders and for people who do crime scene investigation to have a left brain approach to it. They don't see necessarily a murder, but they see a body, they see instruments of murder and so on, but they don't actually see that there are real people that are dead. And that can be a healthy function that essentially what they're dealing with are bodies as opposed to people. The problem with it is if you do that so excessively that then your own children's emotional needs or their wounds or perhaps those of your spouse or a close friend, when they experience an emotional reaction, we can left brain it. We can just respond factually. 
and not show empathy and compassion for people who we should not have that left brain response to. We should be responding emotionally, especially to our children and and those in our family. We should respond with the right brain. And when we're so used professionally to responding with the left brain, it's hard to make that switch when you get home and say, wait a minute, these are not just human figures in my home. These are real people with real feelings. Yeah. How do we balance those processes or train ourselves? And you're faced with somebody who's experienced this trauma, and again, oversimplifying, who's over-right-brained about the trauma. How do you help that person develop processes that allow them to take a step back from it and deal with it in a healthy way? Well, there's a couple different things that work into that. One is that we have to recognize that we respond with both brains to most stimulation that occurs in our environment. We do have a left brain that's responding to the facts of what's happening, and we have a right brain that responds emotionally. For example, if we're watching our favorite NFL team play, we have no impact on the game whatsoever, and yet we might emotionally be expressive tremendously. We have tremendous emotion involved in watching the game from our homes uh, hundreds of miles away. So we're doing that all the time. What I try to do in the training that I give is to help people recognize what part of the brain at any given moment is making the decision. Is it factual or is it emotional? So if you tell me I'm eating something and I really like the taste of it, and then afterwards you tell me it's something that I find repulsive, then I might change my mind about how that tasted. Well, in the moment, it was fine. But when you tell me that it's some kind of a snail or something like that, I might have a different reaction to it. So there's basically three different ways that we experience reality. One is through sensory data. The second is through logical thinking, or what we think is logical. And the third way is existential, which means it affects my core, my, my soul, my spirit. And so what I look for in first responders is when they are traumatized, the actual event is no longer present. They are days removed from the scene. But logically, it's impacting them because the images come back with color, with smell, with some visceral experience to that. The most serious is when a person existentially responds to a trauma by feeling as though they're not cut out for this line of work. It's too much for them. It's too negative for them. And their basic core changes from being called into a field of first responders or crime scene investigators or any kind of accessory feel to this, and they feel like that has been damaged. And that's a very serious thing because you're talking about a person losing their career or making a career-ending mistake on the job, uh, making a serious issue, or the increase in depression, suicide, alcoholism, and so on. Yeah, it's hard to understand how to define a good endpoint for somebody in that situation because they obviously got into the profession because they had an interest in it. Obviously, the agency has invested in the person and wants to see them, you know, be able to continue in their job because it's a problem if you have to replace the individual. But on the other hand, it can be not necessarily in that person's interest to ignore that existential feeling, right? I mean, that's something that is a real feeling. And balancing that with these other equities can be a real challenge. Well, part of the solution to that is is how existential we live outside of the job. Do we have intimate relationships? Do we have things in our private lives that we can share with somebody close to us, whether it's a medical concern or a spiritual question or some existential question about life itself. When we have those relationships, then dealing with existential trauma is easier because we have people who will respond appropriately to that. On a more superficial level, first responders tend to use humor. And the humor is basically a way of dismissing the seriousness of the situation by making light of it. So dark humor and those kinds of things are probably appropriate for a dismissal of a simple existential issue. 
when it gets deeper than that, when a person really feels like it could have been their own child or their own grandmother who died, you can't use humor for that. You have to have a deep uh, relationship. And so I encourage the people that come to my training to develop those relationships, whether it's within the family or within the field or somebody outside the field, that they have that capacity to share things that are embarrassing or provocative to them, whether it makes them angry or or shameful or guilty or whatever the response is, that they have relationships that can tolerate the depth of that communication. Yeah, I remember many stories over the years about medical professionals where who used dark humor a great, great deal and often classic story of what were they doing during the operation, right? Like, you know, yeah. releasing that stress in sometimes inappropriate yeah. ways, right? And so you need to find other mechanisms as well and understand where the limit is for when that type of humor really becomes inappropriate. It can be a blessing and a trap at the same time, can't it? Exactly. And what I often tell officers is if they make a joke on scene, they're really in some ways checking out their colleagues to see if they can respond with humor as well. In other words, they're not bothered by what they saw. So a joke that is responded to with more humor is evidence that everyone's dealing with it okay. But if you make light of a scene and somebody responds with anger, frustration, then you know that they're dealing with it in a different way. They're not seeing it in a, a professional way or a, a disbodied way. They are seeing a real person and they're affected by that. And some scenes can make one person react that way, whereas the other people on scene really just see it as another day at work. And so we have to be very sensitive to who it is that's affected, especially when it's ourselves, and what will I do when I'm traumatized? The basis of my training is to say you're going to be traumatized far more than the average person. What is your plan when that happens? What steps will you take? How do you know when to ask for help? And get those processes in place before that trauma occurs. That's a really interesting set of insights. There's a lot to be to be unraveled there, and I'd love to talk to you for a long time about it. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is that uh, uh, certainly forensic scientists, but really in general law enforcement, isn't given that kind of of training in emotional intelligence, and it's a it's a problem because it isn't just the professionals in criminal justice who experience uh, the kind of stress and trauma and and uh, you, and for whom you need to be aware of what um, of, of of kind of how they might react to different situations to how you behave, but it's also suspects and victims and bystanders in these incidents or in in any kind of arrest situation or anything like that, who can also have those same kinds of reactions. And if the officer isn't aware of how those reactions may manifest under different circumstances, they can easily make things much, much worse. Absolutely. And obviously the patrol deputy on scene has to be aware of the reactions of the people around them, especially when we talk about stemming violence and, and so on, that other people around may be more and more angry. So we do have to be aware of those things. In general, the public, persons like myself who, who live a life that's, that's normal outside of law enforcement, the trauma that I experience is fairly infrequent, and I deal with it by having friendships or by making light of it or just letting time go by and, and eventually it fades. But when you're exposed to that repeatedly and you have to respond, you can't walk away, you can't call 911 and leave it at that. You have to get your hands dirty. You have to hold the person who's dying. You have to apply you know, medical attention to a wound. Those people don't have that option. And so uh, I would say that for what we're doing today, Anybody who's exposed to that should 
primarily be aware of their own reaction to that, especially if they can't sleep at night, if their diet changes, if they experience headaches or nausea. We have to be aware of, of our own functioning and, and how to take care of ourselves. Yeah, and the other part of this that I think is really fascinating is the interplay between, you know, we talk about work-life balance all the time, just about every profession today. Certainly the case in forensic science that the work-life balance is important, and you're raising this other issue. Uh, the work-life balance makes the person more resilient. The forensic science organization that allows a person to, uh, you know, <laughs> keep that balance in their life as opposed to stressing them out every day or, you know, taking time into their profession every day, you know, they're not going to be as successful when an incident occurs and, and there's trauma with their folks. There's many things that uh, that go into having a poor response to the trauma, and one of those is overworked. I worked with a deputy who put in 20-hour days on a homicide, and where I live, homicides are fairly infrequent, but she was given three cases back to back to back, and over the course of about six weeks, she was putting in 20-hour days. And so when she came to see me, she was devastated from just the workload and the lack of sleep. And, you know, she hadn't had friendships for three weeks, and she hadn't been a, a good person in her own home for three weeks. So those kinds of things add up. And if you have some animosity within the organization, if you don't feel like you can speak up because the chief sheriff will look down on you, it makes it difficult. If you have a, a culture where it's just humor, that we just make light of everything that happens that's traumatic, you don't have the resources then to deal with that existential blow. If you say something, it's going to be made fun of. So we have to change the culture that way too, that people recognize that it's going to happen. And it, it happens to people after 20 years in the field, and they just don't expect it to happen. I mean, we all have highs and lows in our personal life and in our careers. I mean, that's to be expected. You know, the, the ways in which the strategies that we deal with personally and the supports that we put around ourselves are so, so important so that we can manage those highs and lows effectively. Let's talk about, I guess, two ways that we might do that. I mean, first, on a personal basis, there's ways that we can build supports around ourselves with respect to, you know, family and, and friends and being part of communities that matter to us. But I assume that there's also some techniques and, and other practices that people can try to practice, whether they're experiencing a lot of trauma or not, so that they can be more resilient. Yes, there's certainly things that we should all understand and practice individually apart from any other relationship. And that is one of the major things is understanding our own physiology. It would make sense to somebody next to me if I responded with uh, heightened anxiety about a certain breed of dog, if I explained to them that that breed of dog bit me when I was a child. But apart from that person being there, if I just get aroused with anxiety about a situation and I don't even recognize that I've done that, I'm in more trouble. When I do recognize that this situation makes me nervous or nauseous or hypervigilant, then I can calm my own body through three primary ways. One is that I make sure that my body's totally relaxed. I don't have muscle tension that comes back to me. Secondly, I regulate my breathing. If you slow your breathing down, the physiology slows down. And thirdly, I have filled my brain with spiritual things or pleasurable things that I can think of in a given moment. So life is not terrible. This is a terrible situation, but in general, my life has had many pleasant things. I have many pleasant memories of experiences. So those are three ways primarily that every person should use, even apart from the, a culture that might be uh, less receptive. And of course, people who aren't able to do that oftentimes 
resort to other strategies that oftentimes alcohol or even drugs or uh, violence or treating others around them poorly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really negative ways for a person to respond to the trauma that they are experiencing. Absolutely. If you are wound up with anxiety and you have adrenaline flowing through your body for multiple hours a day, or especially at bedtime, everyone is familiar with what alcohol can do that. Alcohol can overpower the anxiety and eventually put you to sleep. So it's a very attractive alternative to being healthy. The same would be with, with drugs. The same would be with other inappropriate releases of adrenaline that do calm us down, but they're in the long run, they become very unhealthy for us. So it's very important that a person understand their own physiology when it gets aroused, that it's done through Pavlovian means. It's not that the trauma is reoccurring. It's that some element in their environment has triggered that memory and to quell that or to stop that through those three things that I mentioned, the body, the breathing, and the brain. When you're able to do that, then your physiological arousal is shortened. It's manageable. It's, uh, it's seemed more appropriate. The other kind of layer that we can discuss here is also at the organizational level. There are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are managers and supervisors or laboratory directors who have a position of responsibility in forensic science. What can organizations do now to help their folks become more resilient? To me, the, the best thing to do is to bring in training that addresses the group as a whole. That way everybody has heard it, everyone knows the model that's being promoted, and they're familiar with that. And it gives an organization as a whole an inoculation to what we're dealing with. And so it's not individual, it's it's in mass that the organization exposed to training that is familiar to everybody. Secondly, I think that managers of uh, agencies like this need to be aware that when a person comes to them, that immediate help would be beneficial to them. I, I wish that every organization provided the EAP or paid for sessions initially for a person because when these things are caught early, like with any medical condition, the results are much better. You don't want to see somebody become so negative and then have a negative reaction from their sheriff or chief or manager that intensifies it. They don't get it. They don't understand me. Um, the organization is against this, and uh, it really it does intensify things quite a bit. And the other part of this is, and uh, one of the things that we've learned is that when a traumatic incident occurs, also being prepared, having some strategies in place, and being open-minded about the strategies that can be put in place to help folks cope with their trauma and anxiety can be very, very important. So are there things that organizations can do after trauma to be able to help folks cope? Are there some best practices? that can be followed? Well, I'm a strong believer in the debriefings. And debriefings are beneficial for two reasons. One is that cognitively, it gives a chronological progression of how the event happened and who responded how. Oftentimes, a first responder in the situation is only aware of their own actions. They are providing triage or they're providing some response to safety of the scene. And they're not aware of what's happening in other areas. They're not aware of why somebody suddenly made a different movement or addressed a different concern. And so cognitively, a debriefing helps everybody in the room get a chronological sense of what happened and why. And secondly, it awakens people in the room that others had a similar reaction to it. If we respond to a scene that involves a, a tragedy or death and the scene can be explained, it's a logical thing, the person was speeding, the person is of advanced age, something like that, it doesn't seem to provoke trauma because 
our logic would tell us the person has lived a full life and they were speeding, they didn't hurt anybody else. Those kinds of things make it easier for a person to, as you mentioned earlier, put it in their left brain or just make a logical reaction to it. But when it intensifies an emotional reaction and other people in the room have had that same reaction, it normalizes how a given person's feelings make sense. We all felt that. We all were angry. We were all devastated. We were all shocked at what happened. So the debriefings are one way of doing that. A second way is just routinely just addressing this, giving people an opportunity. The wellness programs have become popular where you're given an opportunity to speak with a therapist regardless of when the trauma occurred. It's just a regular part of your yearly annual checkup that you go talk with somebody. And sometimes you've forgotten an event from six months ago, but in that one hour of session, it comes back and you can deal with it more effectively. So I think there are some cultural changes that are going on, unfortunately driven by the number of traumas that we have and by the culture of our nation right now with with how many traumas do occur. So you've been through a decade of learning in this area, and you've actually developed a training that can be used in first responder or public safety organizations that addresses some of these issues. Can you talk a little bit about the training that that you provide and how that works and what kind of outcomes you look for from that training? Sure. Well, I think there's probably three primary phases to the training that I give. The first is philosophical, that we understand that we obtain truth through sensory data, through logical data, through existential data. And most of us in our culture are familiar with empirical data, sensory data. We've tasted it ourselves, so on. Most of us are familiar with logical data, that it makes sense that this occurs. But only people who attend to the existential data even are familiar with what that means, of how you are you're called into a certain profession or you're called into a certain behavior activity. Maybe you're called to, to run a marathon or to skydive and you, it just is inside you that you have to do this. So the existential parts of this can be very positive that people feel a deep calling to protect their nation, to protect their communities, and that's what drives them. And so they have resiliency because the calling to protect people is so strong for them. What surprises many people is when that calling is challenged by a trauma. When they feel like, maybe I'm not cut out to be this. I was there, but I couldn't stop the trauma. I'm tired of being exposed to this. I feel like I'm a defeated person. So when a person experiences it that existentially, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think people need training specifically on what existential means in terms of being a first responder. The second part of the training goes to what we've referred to earlier with the left brain and the right brain, that first responders are wonderful people to hang out with because when things happen, when things go south, the first responder is comfortable in responding in a logical, progressive way. And so I love to climb or raft or backpack with these people because you know if something goes wrong, They've got a plan for that. They've got the first aid kit. They know what to do. So that's another way that we can experience the benefits of being a a first responder. So the brain is a big part of that. But first responders are not immune from having a right brain reaction. They're not immune from suddenly that what they're looking at affects them emotionally. That surprises them. It can catch them off guard. They may have responded to 50 similar situations, but this time they're responding emotionally. They responded physiologically, and that surprises people. The third part of the training that I find to be helpful is just walking through this map. These are the things that we do that promote resiliency, and that is having relationships that are existential in nature. I can talk about anything. The person's not going to judge me or criticize me. There's intimacy that I I may have to preface it. What I'm about to tell you is very personal. I need you to, to be on board with me. Don't make light of this. I'm very serious about what I'm talking about. So we can preface it, but people who have deep existential relationships 
have more resiliency. Secondly, we have other things in our lives that repair us existentially. A person who fly fishes or goes for a run or engages with their children or has a hobby that they particularly enjoy, if they see that as existentially filling them, then they know where to turn for that kind of enlightenment. So they take a day off and rather than staying in bed and bemoaning things and repeating their anxiety, they do something that restores them existentially. They feel better about life, having gone to an art museum, having had coffee with a friend, having exercised more, more aggressively, so things of that nature. So what do you do, David, to relax yourself? How do you deal with the existential crises of David Christensen's life? Well, I, I do have several good existential relationships with people, and I have apprised them, each of them, that I'm not immune to having a bad day or having an emotional reaction. Sometimes I have patients in my office who have expressed things that are impossible for therapy to address. You can't bring back a dead child. You can't make a person have physical relief from pain when they're going to be in back pain the rest of their lives from what happened. So there are days where I feel vulnerable and I have people in my life who understand that and respond to it. Whereas on a typical day, I might say something and get a joke back or it's just lighthearted. So I do have people in my life who are aware that my deepest days require communication and they offer that to me. I've also been told by a number of people that I have good choices of hobbies. I do fly fish, I do raft, I do backpack, I do a lot of things that are spiritual in nature to me. It's not just hiking for mileage, it's hiking for my soul. It's being aware of smells and sights and experiences and animal life and so on that when I'm spiritually aware of that, it's healing for me. So I'm able to come back in the office and, and give to other people what they need because I've taken time to go away and restore that for myself. And just so the audience knows, Dr. Christensen has committed that if I can get away, he uh, will uh, do what he's done before, which is be a climbing guide on Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. That sounds like a wonderful spiritual experience and uh, 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 definitely something that would be healing for any of us who were able to go along with such a trip. So you definitely practice what you preach in making sure you have those kinds of things in your life. Well, just to take the Kilimanjaro as an example, a person could go there and bemoan the fact that they're hiking for five or six hours every day. Or you could go there and just have your eyes wide open, your ears wide open. You're listening to the African guides singing uh, songs in Swahili. You're seeing things that you'll never see again. You're tasting food that you've never had before. So you can make this a deeply spiritual experience, or you could get on the trail and just begrudge the fact that you should have worked out more and how tiring it is and how far is it to camp. So you make that choice even in that moment that you can go to a place like Kilimanjaro, you can fly fish and be angry the whole time, be negative the whole time. So part of that is just recognizing the spiritual opportunity that you have. And that can be with your own child, uh, pushing them on a swing or, or taking them on a bicycle ride. It's being aware that you have a spiritual option available to you that will heal you and making sure that you, you choose that perception of what you're doing. Thank you very much. Our guest today has been Dr. David Christensen talking about resiliency and trauma. If you uh, liked what you heard today, which I certainly did, I learned a great, great deal and really enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Christensen today, please make sure you get on to uh, your favorite podcast platform. Give us a, a few likes. It'll help us to uh, spread the word about Just Science. Thank you very much for being on the program, Dr. Christensen. 
John, thank you for your time and, and good luck with your career and with your, your own well-being. I appreciate what you do. Thank you very much. Next week on Just Science, we will have Katie Featherston, Brian Hoey, and Jeremy Triplett to discuss the ASCLAD Rapid DNA Committee efforts. The majority of these interviews were recorded at the 2018 ASCLAD Annual Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia. If you have an interesting case and would like to be a guest on our next season, which will be recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at forensicscoe.org forward slash just science podcast opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding